Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to our first Word to the Wise podcast for 2024. I'm Krista Leonard and I'm joined by my fellow partner, Michael Stutley and Senior Associate Luke Maroney. Hello both. Hello, Krista. Good to be back. I know we've had a bit of a hiatus on our podcast series, but it's been a big year and an even bigger year to come. Yes, it has. And are you there, Luke? I am, and it's good to be with you, even if remotely. I hope everything's going well in Perth. Excellent. Well, we hope you are all recharged after what was a pretty frantic 2023. Uh, It's great to be back. Starts, as you say, hitting the ground running. And I predict we're going to have a jam-packed year of legislative reform on the employment, industrial and work health safety front. Well, before we get into it, Krista, I think what we should do as a bit of fun is go around the group here and pick a word. What's a word for 2024 that sums it up for you? Well, you can start. Okay. I think this is the year of the handbrake. It, let's imagine ourselves in a car right now. We're speeding ahead. There's two ways to operate a brake. One is to apply the pedal softly. The other is to jam on a handbrake and uh, see what happens. I think we're going to spin around in a 360. Uh, the pendulum swung a little bit too far, I think. And um, this year will be the year that it uh, really comes through. Awesome. All right, Luke, what's yours? I think this is the year of uncertainty. I I think we've got a lot of uh, different reform proposals coming from a lot of different positions across the spectrum, and they're going to come to a bit of a head, but it's never clear uh, right at the beginning of the year where those compromises and those uh, reform proposals are going to land. Very good. Well, I'm going to move from the car analogy to maybe a water analogy, and I'm going to say it's the year of the swell. Not so much that all is well, because whilst I hope it will be, uh, (laughs) I'm uh, a little uncertain about that, but it's expansive. It's a burgeoning sort of tide of water rising in the sense of what's ahead. So that's my word, swell. Let's just go back in time a short while, because we did say we had a huge 2023. Just on a flyby, run through, Give us a recap on what happened last year. Well, 2023, I mean, that was a year where um, I think I really feel for small to medium enterprise. There's the compliance burden has increased significantly. Uh, we've had probably some of the biggest changes that we've seen in the last decade all happen within 12 months. And that's, that will obviously flow into 2024. I think there's been a bit of a lag effect, which we'll start to see come through. But just some of the things from the top of my head that we saw, which were significant changes, were multi-employer bargaining, changes to the boot test, changes to other industrial action provisions and intractable bargaining comes to mind. We've already seen that play through. And of course, uh, mandatory conciliation conferences for parbos. But these are really significant changes and I don't think anyone should underestimate them, but it is going to take a lot of time for business and lawyers to get their heads around. Well, that's right. And we've had to grapple with all of that change throughout, the, the, particularly the second half of last year. Um, Luke, to add to that, tell us about some of the changes that came through from the Respect at Work reforms. So the, the big change that we've seen at the end of last year is the introduction of the positive duty in respect of sexual harassment and the elimination of sex discrimination in workplaces. That's something that we see as a theme upcoming this year as well, coming out of the Human Rights Commission's Free and Equal report. And those are duties that the Australian Human Rights Commission is now lobbying government to have placed 
in all areas of anti-discrimination law. So some big potential changes in that space uh, coming through. That same report uh, also gave birth to the recommendation that the costs provisions in human rights and anti-discrimination legislation uh, be changed to mirror some of what we see in the industrial space, that is, uh, that applicants will be protected from paying costs of unsuccessful claims that proceed to court. Let's talk about that because that, I think, is one of the big changes that's going to be quite instrumental if the cost bill goes ahead as it's currently drafted. And of course, we know that federal courts have a broad discretionary power to make cost orders at the moment. And usually the, the order that costs follow the event is the way it goes in anti-discrimination matters. What the Albanese government did uh, at the end of last year was introduce the cost bill, which would amend the Human Rights Commission Act to provide a non-standard cost model to be applied across all federal court claims alleging unlawful discrimination under the Act. Stutz, tell me a bit about what was proposed in that bill. Look, I think if we take a little step back and look at what was actually proposed in the recommendations, and the recommendations were that you have something akin to Section 570 of the Fair Work Act right now, which, as you point out, Chris, too, is largely discretionary um, when you have the court considering the issue of cost. But we went much further than that in the bill, and I think this is one example, a very clear example of the handbrake issue that we're about to find. There are plenty of unintended consequences that will come from the breadth of this bill, it effectively, in my view, strips any incentive for complainants to resolve matters at a conciliation stage, whether that's in the Fair Work Commission, the Australian Human Rights Commission, um, or even in the state commissions. And equally for employers, it strips an incentive to resolve because if all roads lead to the court and costs orders being made, then I think you'll find there'll be entrenched positions and there'll be far less prospect of things resolving in those jurisdictions where um, yeah, you have specialist bodies guiding conciliations and, and mediations and those types of processes, which can only be a good thing if they actually work. But I, I fear that this bill is going to do the complete opposite of what it is intended to do. Well, it's so far in favour of the applicants. And of course, th that comes from a place of, I think, good intention in the sense that it has been incredibly hard for an applicant uh, who has experienced sexual harassment or some form of discrimination to bring a claim where, you know, often the respondent is a large employer, uh, has deep pockets and can wear them down in terms of litigation and the costs. And what this bill does is that it's based on what's known as the equal access model, which basically has the effect of saying, well, if you're a respondent and you're unsuccessful at the end of the, the matter, then you must play, pay the applicant's costs. And that's regardless of the outcome. Applicants are protected from adverse cost orders in most circumstances. And there's some limitations on that, obviously, but generally, as you say, Stutz, it doesn't really disincentivize an applicant from making a claim and going as far as they want, e even if it's a spurious claim or, or doesn't necessarily hold up. Mm. I think we can all agree there's there's obviously legitimate claims and um, and those claims that you know, do need to be brought to a resolution in one form or another. But we also need to acknowledge that there are a lot of claims that aren't genuine and you know, we need to be conscious of the impediments that will be in place for employers and complainants in having those resolved in an earlier stage. Uh, I mean, it's all about seeking to find a, a balance of the different rights of the parties and 
there is a big question mark over the current proposal as to whether uh, there is that fair balance being reached. And for the reasons you've outlined, Michael, I think you're right to say that really the balance is being tipped so far in the favour of one side that it has the potential to incentivise claims that don't have merit. Correct. So if we shift from the discrimination space, I'd like to pivot into the work health safety space if I can, uh, because this is another area of massive reform and one that I think will have huge impacts for employers and employees alike. At the end of last year, September and throughout December, the federal government introduced some further changes through the Closing the Loopholes Bill, dealing particularly with work health safety reform and introducing a new industrial manslaughter offence and introducing significant increases to all penalties in the Commonwealth Work Health Safety Act. So tell us a bit more about that, Stutz, and what you see as sort of rising there on the agenda. Mm. So this is a big one. 2023 saw some uh, pretty significant changes in the work health safety space. One thing that we do see happening is that we are slowly straying away from what was originally this harmonised scheme. And this is important to know because WA, for one, has only just harmonised and here we are moving away from that a little bit. But of course, from a, at a national perspective, there is increased focus and attention on psychosocial health and safety, increased penalties, as you say, Krista. And a big one, which has been very topical uh, in the media of late, is silica and the thousands of people working in engineered stone products. And we're looking at the various work health safety ministers, both in states and the Commonwealth, uh, looking to implement the Safe Work Australia's recommendation to prohibit the use of engineered stone. So I think 2024 is going to see some significant leaps um, in respect of that. Yeah, good. Let's talk about some other closing loophole changes uh, I'm going to throw to you, Luke, and ask you to talk about some of the other changes that are being tabled as part of that closing the loopholes bill, of which I should say we're recording this. It's the 5th of February and the uh, parliament is going to be resuming and presumably is close to passing this bill. And we're going to see some changes probably this week or imminently. So, Luke, tell us a bit more about some of the changes arising from the closing the loopholes bill. Sure. So a few of the changes that we have seen at the end of last year from the first round of closing loopholes are additional provisions for the Commission to deal with labour hire disputes and in particular disputes about same job, same pay as the government has branded it. And those will allow for unions and those that they represent to seek orders of the Commission that labour hire employees be paid at the same rates and under the same conditions as host employers. Something that's going to be a real shock to the model of many workplaces and all labour hire operators around the economy. There have also been amendments in respect of wage theft and superannuation in particular, new superannuation provisions in the Fair Work Act that allow for enforcement of payment of superannuation in the same way as other employment-related entitlements. And that will lead to further prosecutions in that area and further action being taken to enforce minimum super guarantees, which previously had been complicated by needing to run through tax authorities and having no direct legal enforcement ability from the employee end. 
We've also seen new provisions in respect of union delegates' rights in the workplace, in particular requirements to consult and recognise the rights of union workplace delegates. Coming this year are further discussions in the second tranche of closing loopholes amendments, including redefinition of casual employment. And of course, we only recently got a legislative decision of casual employment, but it looks like we're moving towards a different definition for the purpose. Is that spinning vehicle with the handbrake? That's right. I mean, that's just yanking the handbrake, isn't it, Luke? It it is. Uh, And these kinds of things that that do create that uncertainty within workforce planning and across the economic environment for people who are in charge of setting the mix of different employee types within the workplace and planning for work uh, on a, an ongoing basis. If I could, also- if I could just interrupt there, Luke, and just talk about that a bit more, because not only is there a proposed new uh, definition of casual employees, but there's also the definition of employee that's going to be inserted into the Act. And that has massive ramifications in terms of really undoing the current High Court position around contractors uh, and employees. And obviously, as our listeners know from our previous podcasts, and the current position is contract is king when it comes to determining who is a contractor and who is an employee. And all of that is going to be uh, undone through this definition, uh, which we head back in time to the uh, morphing caterpillar into a butterfly and what starts out as a certain arrangement can become another arrangement through the life of the employment arrangement by virtue of these definitions in the Act. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point, Krista. And what we're going to see is uh, these redefinitions really focusing attention on how work is done and how uh, employment relationships are, are planned, but also how employment relationships are monitored and implemented throughout their duration. But the uh, amendments don't touch only uh, on employees, even people who uh, under the new definition wouldn't be employees and certainly under the old definition courts have found them not to be we'll see increased regulation. So we've got the gig economy uh, space and the road transport space where the Labor government is seeking to implement a a scheme of regulation to enforce minimum standards. We've seen this before from the past Labor government in uh, about a decade ago in respect of the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal. And it seems that the proposals for both gig economy workers and road transport workers seem to want to implement a light version of that tribunal, giving the Fair Work Commission expanded powers to set minimum rates of pay. I'm going to throw another one out there, which is a topical one, and um, I'm interested in your views, Krista and Luke. The right to disconnect. What are we doing here? I mean, this is a concept that's been around for a while, particularly in the higher education sector. And Luke, you can talk a bit about that. But particularly, this is an amendment that wasn't included in the original closing loopholes bill. So it remains to be seen what it might actually look like. But it's a proposed Greens amendment that was tabled to Parliament and really instills or seeks to instill a right, a workplace right in the Fair Work Act, that an employee can say where they are, otherwise aren't being paid, no, I'm not going to pick up the phone and answer that call or log on after my contracted work hours. Now, it has a whole raft of implications in terms of, you know, that then becoming a workplace right, how employers manage that uh, over time and how their contracts are drafted in terms of reasonable additional hours 
uh, and being paid for that. So it's going to be a really interesting area to watch as to what is, you know, actually comes of it. But I know that we've been negotiating in the higher education sector around this, and it's not a new concept there. Luke, how has it played out in that sector? There've been a number of different models across different institutions in the higher education sector. And of course, in certain um, state public sector agreements coming out of Victoria in particular. And those different models of the right to disconnect uh, have very different impacts. Some of them take a light touch approach. I think what we're looking at in a legislative response is not going to be that light touch approach. But what we see often is a, a multifactorial um, consideration being given to things like an employee's level of remuneration, their ordinary scope of duties, and, and matters like that to determine whether or not approaches outside of ordinary working hours are reasonable, sort of in the similar model to how ordinary working hours can be set under the national employment standards and reasonable additional overtime can be set in that way. The right to disconnect, though, seeks to take that limitation on overtime one step further. Often uh, unions bargaining for these provisions and the, the Greens bill looks quite similar to some of these union-drafted provisions. Uh, what they seek to do is create an absolute stop uh, unless certain condition precedents are met. Uh, and so those conditions precedent may include emergency type work uh, or work where there's a specific identifiable remuneration for the out-of-hours contact, uh, but otherwise forbidding that out-of-hours contact or that out-of-hours requirement to work being made. It can be very difficult uh, in a number of sectors and I think the public service and higher education are the exception rather than the rule in respect of this. But it can be very difficult to manage a workforce in a flexible way uh, where those restrictions are in place. Really seems to me to be a step backwards. You know, if I look at it and you look at the flexibility that's been achieved in various workplaces, and as Luke described, various industries that already have this um, this concept in place. But to legislate it now and to put fixed boundaries around it, to me, just seems a bit archaic. Yeah, especially when employees have been, you know, pushing for that flexibility over the last three to five years. All right, we're doing flyby, so I'm going to flip again or pull the handbrake and uh, change direction. Gender equality and pay gap reporting. 2024 is the year for change in this space. It sure is. I mean, there's a lot of reporting requirements in place already. And I think that it goes back to this compliance burden that small to medium enterprise is going to really struggle with. I think that not to consciously exclude large business, but large business has the resources in place to be able to ensure that these types of reporting obligations are met. But a lot of other businesses out there are going to have to get their heads around what these reporting requirements are when they come up and to make sure that accurate reporting is being undertaken because if it's not, there are plenty of flow-on consequences from a lot of the changes that we've seen implemented. Yeah, and look, following the requirement to report and on data and statistics, the WGIA government website has a lot of really uh, helpful and useful information, particularly around industry snapshots and collection of that data. It's really good if you haven't already to log on to that site and have a look at it. 
uh, look at some of the reporting data, but also that the requirement to have policies in place and the, the reporting policy is uh, another area that is, you know, companies going to have to report on. So there are reporting changes coming up. To the extent that you do have to report uh, and you do have a report on your website, there again is useful tools on that um, Wajia website on how to go about doing that, but also, you know, using it as a, a really good measure to make sure that you are mapping, monitoring and reducing the pay inequity, you know, between sexes in the workplace. All right. That's probably a flyby on the federal space. I'm conscious of space. I don't want to leave today's podcast without talking about the industrial relations space in New South Wales. It's significant change and reform on the agenda there. So Luke, tell us a bit about that before we uh, sign off. Yes, just very quickly. The New South Wales government at the end of last year has introduced a concept uh, into the state industrial relations system of mutual gains bargaining seeking to return uh, the minimum terms and conditions that are payable under the state system to a more negotiated framework. This is something that's been uh, on the wish list of Unions New South Wales and its affiliates for about a decade now following the introduction of the wages policy which the mutual gain system repeals. Alongside that, the New South Wales government has reintroduced the industrial court. That's set to be re-established later this year uh, and we're awaiting appointments of judges to that court. But uh, what that court will deal with are both civil and criminal contraventions of WHS law and other workplace-related laws, including workplace surveillance legislation, explosives legislation, workers' compensation legislation insofar as it has a criminal aspect to it. So real throwback to pre-2012 or, or pre-2016, rather, when that court was abolished, we're seeing that court back up and running in a further expanded jurisdiction to what it previously had. So, Lou, do you see the effect of this being more litigated outcomes? Would that be a fair statement? I, I think it is part of a, an overall strategy to see um, more activity through the Industrial Relations Commission and Industrial Court uh, together. Uh, whether or not it leads to more litigated outcomes in, in respect of work health and safety matters it is a bit of a wait and see. But the transfer of that jurisdiction from the New South Wales District Court into a specialist court, it is likely to see a different glean or a different sort of overall approach taken. It won't be a court of general jurisdiction dealing with these. It will be a court that's specifically constituted to do deal with workplace matters. It's entirely conceivable that that will mean more severe penalties in prosecuted matters. Well, I'm happy to report that in the Battle of the States, uh, Western Australia has had its own specialist jurisdiction in the Industrial Magistrates Court uh, for a number of years now and well ahead and some would say more advanced than New South Wales, but uh, I think we'll leave it there. And our Queensland compatriots will probably agree with that as well. Uh, look, uh, that's great. I think there's so much more that we could talk about, but as I said, I think we'll leave that to, to other or further podcasts uh, and you will have to tune in and listen to what lies ahead so if we take the swell of uncertainty and apply a handbrake, we're going to find ourselves spinning. <laughs> spinning with uncertainty. I like it. As the tide rises uh, over the, the coming months. Look, it's been a pleasure talking to you both uh, as we start the year with the um, 
all things coming up for what's in store 2024. I do want to send a plug to the Kingston Readable for the firm's new e-newsletter, which is sent to subscribers uh, every two months, and it covers key updates and developments across each of the areas that we've talked about, but also um, many other things to come. So if you haven't subscribed to Kingston Readable, then be sure to jump on our website or contact one of our fabulous lawyers and we'll sign you up. See you next time. Great to speak to you both.